All right. Well, I was going to look at uh, a book we've we've talked about before by John Piper called "A Hunger for God," and uh, <clears throat> it talks about praying and fasting. And so we'll we'll look at that next week. But for tonight, I'm going to just literally pick up where I left off this morning. Um, I saw that it was like five till noon. And I was like a third of the way through my sermon. And I said, like, well, and we still had the Lord's Supper to do. And so I was like, this is not going to work out well. So let's just pick up right where we left off. Matthew chapter 12. We read uh, verses 18 through 21. This is a key passage from the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> and it reminds us <clears throat> from Isaiah 42 that the scriptures... The prophets, the prophecies point to Jesus as our hope, as the one who is the servant of God, the son of God, and the one whom, whom God has anointed to proclaim justice to the Gentiles and hope, as we ended this morning's sermon, hope for the Gentiles. Now we're going to pick up in verse 22. Again, this is such a long chapter. We're going to look at every section except for verses 43 through 45. No particular reason, just ran out of time. So in verse 22 through 32, we see Jesus again healing, again healing. Uh, he heals many people, heals um, lots of people. And again, just as we said this morning, the signs, the wonders, the healing, the miracles all point us not to um, an experience, not to uh, a wonder, not, not to be entertained by Jesus, but rather to submit to Jesus, to see that he is Lord, as we saw this morning, he is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of all. So now we see this in verses 22 through 32. We, I won't read the, the, the whole chapter again, but let's pick up in verse 22. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, this is a theme throughout the Gospels, Jesus knows their thoughts, he says to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That theme is familiar. Verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. These are strong words by Jesus. As I read that section, it reminded me of the, the confrontation back and forth between Jesus and the Sadducees and the Pharisees in John chapter 8, 
when he was reminding them that his father was Abraham, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was pointing, pointing to him, that is Jesus. Likewise, we have another confrontation here, and Jesus is teaching them that he is the son of David. This is a theme throughout Matthew that he has come as the son of David. And you would think that the Pharisees would be impressed by what Jesus does in this section, not hardly. What does Jesus do? Right there at the beginning it says, he heals a demon-oppressed man. Not only does he, that would be impressive in and of itself. He heals a demon-oppressed man who was what? Blind and mute. I mean, talk about a trifecta. This is a pretty amazing sight to behold. The man immediately, the text says, speaks and sees. Immediately, he speaks and sees. So you would think everybody would be astonished. You would think everybody would be amazed. You would think they would say, this is the Messiah. This is the son of David. But that's not what happens. We see some, again, are astonished, yet others are enraged. And as I put it this morning, those who are beyond humbling are beyond healing. So the Pharisees would not be humbled. They were enraged. And what do they do? They blame Jesus' power from where? Where do they, where do they attribute Jesus' power is coming from? From Satan. I mean, it's, if I was Jesus, and again, thank God I'm not, it would be one of those moments just like, how can you not see this? And so Jesus uh, rebukes them with authority on high. The passage says, the passage says that he knew their thoughts. He knew their thoughts, yet he doesn't extinguish them on the, on the spot. He tells them, every kingdom divided itself is laid waste. And then he says, he says, um, later in verse 28, he says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So again, he reminds them, I am not doing this by satanic power. I am not demonic. Yet they were skeptical they reject what he is doing. And Jesus makes a declaration to show he is in control. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord over the demons. He is Lord over all the peoples. And, and Jesus continues in verses 30 through 32. And he reminds them that there's no middle ground. You're either with Jesus. You're on his side. You're with him. You're following him as Lord and Savior of all. Or you're not. And so Jesus says, you're with me or you're with Satan. That's basically what he says in verses 30 to 32. He says, those who are not with me are against me. So he makes it clear that you are to follow Jesus. So Jesus confronts the Pharisees in their deliberate rejection. And so the, one of the reasons why he is so uh, plain spoken, candid in his response is because the Pharisees knew better. They knew better. They knew who he was. They knew that he was speaking and healing and doing these wonders from power, not from Satan, but yet that's who they attribute these things to. John MacArthur says this, the, the Pharisees could not deny the reality of what the Holy Spirit had done through him. They could not deny the reality of what the Holy Spirit had done through him, so they attributed to Satan a work that they knew was of God. A work they knew was of God, yet they attributed it to Satan. So, the, um, they blaspheme. And this, this word, I remember as a young Christian thinking, 
what in the world does that mean? I have no idea. But to blaspheme is to speak defiantly and arrogantly towards God. It's the ultimate level of pride. It's to know who God is and and to reject him deliberately and defiantly and to arrogantly speak towards God. So in verse 32, Jesus says, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Again, these are strong words. This is a strong rebuke. In verse 32, Jesus seems to highlight sins that are committed with knowledge of who the Holy Spirit is. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit always reject the Spirit. We are not to defy the Spirit, or else, Jesus says, you will not be forgiven. Again, a, a quote from J.C. Ryle. I quoted him this morning. J.C. Ryle says this. I know this is a bit of a, a tongue twister, but listen to this. The brighter the light, the greater the guilt of the person who rejects it. The clearer a person's knowledge of the nature of the gospel, the greater the sin in willfully refusing to repent and believe. Let me say that again. The brighter the light, the greater the guilt of the person who rejects it. The clearer a person's knowledge of the nature of the gospel, the greater the sin in willfully refusing to repent and believe. So Jesus is telling the Pharisees, he's telling us as well, I am greater than, what did he say this morning? I'm greater than the temple. I am greater than Jonah. I am greater than Solomon. I am, as we see in Hebrews, greater than Moses, greater than the prophets. I am, as we see in the Gospel of John, the one that you are to look to and you are to repent. And you are to believe. But the Pharisees will not and they defy and they blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. At least at this moment in this point. So he speaks a strong word reminding us that our words are important. Our words are important. So this truth is, is not just presented here in Matthew's gospel. This is part of the reason why I um, took a break this morning because I knew I was going to be getting into this. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We see something very similar to what we see in verses 30 through 32 in Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. We had it on the screen, but that's okay. It's good for our fingers to do a little exercise. Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27. This reminds us again of the importance, as we talked about this morning, of persevering faith. The importance of an, a faith that endures to the end. So look, look with me at Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. It says, if... If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. We'll see that in just a few moments. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we see here in Hebrews, just like we see in Matthew, the importance. I mean, Jesus is not just speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking to us as well. The importance of a persevering faith. So here we're reminded that we must repent and believe. We must remember what Jesus says here in verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So Jesus is calling us to repent and believe. So then Jesus continues by making an illustration in verses 33 through 37, and he speaks of trees that are good and trees that are bad. And he uses this illustration pointing pointing us to follow him, pointing us to obey him. And he speaks of trees that are good, that produce good fruit, pointing to those who follow him and produce fruit in following and obey him. And he also speaks of bad trees that produce bad, rotten fruit. The only way a bad tree is not to produce bad fruit is for it to be changed. And so Jesus then, as he's speaking of the bad trees and the, and the good trees, then he candidly calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. He says in verse 34, you, you brood of vipers. He calls them out. He says, how can you speak good when you are evil? In other words, he's saying you can't speak good. You can't do good. You can't have good fruit if you are evil. And so he calls them out. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. They speak like Satan. They act like Satan and their evil accusations and reckless actions. And so he tells them, you are a brood of vipers. And we too must remember that our words reveal our hearts. So we must be careful with our words. In verse 34. So Jesus again contrasts good versus evil in verse 35. He says, The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Now, I don't want you to get the sense, I don't want you to get the sense in this section that there are some good people and there are some evil people. It's not as if some are born good and some are born bad because we are all born evil. We are all depraved. We are all in dire need of salvation. This past week I read a quote by Jonathan Edwards that I heard before. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So we all need a Savior. But what Jesus is doing here is he refers to the good person. He's referring to the one who is following. He's referring to the one who is obeying. He's referring to the one who has been changed, who seeks God and desires to obey Him. But then, he, as he talks about the evil person, as he talks about the one who is evil, this is the person who rejects God, who lives their lives in rebellion. And he is speaking to the Pharisees. He is speaking to them. He says, if you speak in this way, if you accuse me of such actions, you are just carrying out your nature. You're carrying out what's already in your hearts. So this rebellion of the evil must be taken seriously. So Jesus speaks of a day that is coming, a day of judgment in verse 36. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. And then in verse 37, it says, 
by your words. What does it say? By your words you will be justified. That's powerful. That is powerful. Jesus reminds us that a day of judgment is coming. And our words and our works will reveal whether we believe God. Whether, again, as we talked about this morning, whether we have persevering faith and walk by faith or whether we are walking on our own. Jesus, again, he speaks of the judgment in verses 38 through 42. He says, on the last day, some will be taken in judgment while others will be spared. Just like we read throughout the New Testament. People will be condemned, Jesus says in verse 39. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So he talks about this day where there will be a judgment. And they will be condemned on this day because of their words that they have uttered reveal the lies they have believed. So it's not just, I don't want you to see, you know, is it a word that I said or a few words that I said? These are words that reflect their heart. Words that reveal the lies that they have believed. And then it's interesting, throughout this section, Jesus, again, Jesus knows his Old Testament, as I've said this morning. He knows his Old Testament. And he points out Jonah and Solomon and the, and, uh, the queen of the south and several different people here in the Old Testament pointing and confirming and affirming the judgments that will take place. He says, Jonah... Jonah is the sign that I gave you. These people expect a sign, demand a sign, and he says, I've given you a sign. In verse 40, he says, The sign was Jonah, and Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So he gives them this sign, points them to Jonah, because the point here is that Jonah was delivered from the great fish. I too, the Son of Man, will be delivered from the death that I will endure. I'm not going to stay in the grave. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the grave. But I will be raised to life so that you too will be set free from death. So Jesus points back to Jonah in order that they might see again that the prophets, Isaiah and Jonah and David, were pointing to him. And then in verse 41, what does Jesus say? I got ahead of myself earlier. He says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, there's that word we talked about this morning, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Just like this morning, what did he say? He said, Something greater than the temple is here. Something, someone greater than Solomon is is here. Likewise, he says, something greater than Jonah is here. Again, taking their minds off of the Sabbath, off of uh, this or that, or the sacrifices, and pointing them to Jesus. And we must see, this is very important throughout this section, that repentance is required. I hope you got a handout. I think we ran out this morning. But on the handout there, I didn't leave many blanks because I wanted you to make sure you got it all. Repentance is a change of mind regarding sin and God, an inward turning from sin to God, which is known by its fruit. Repentance is not just this theoretical concept that we check off in a box, but when we repent, our hearts are changed, our lives are changed, and we obey. We obey Christ. 
So this is repentance. Remorse is not repentance. Repentance begins with heart change and reveals lasting change. I got an article when I went to the, the counseling conference in Dallas. Brad Bigney uh, is a phenomenal pastor and counselor in Kentucky. And he said, I use an old uh, pamphlet that's no longer in, in, uh, in publication anymore, but you might be able to find it online. And uh, I, sure enough, I found it online. It's called The Unrepenting Repenter. Interesting uh, type, uh, title. And it's phenomenal. It is phenomenal. It's only nine pages long. And if you want a copy, I can get it for you. But in it, he highlights things that resemble repentance but are not repentance. And so that's why the name of the, t- the title is called The Unrepenting Repenter. Well, here's just two topics that I think this, name, this guy's name is uh, Tom Eliff or Jim Eliff, one of those two. But he says, sometimes people try to substitute true repentance with remorse and other things. One, one example, he says, some try and reform in their actions without repenting in their heart. This is the biggest way. We've all done this at some point in time, most likely, is I see that this action is wrong here, so I've got to change the action. And what, what do we do? We get the action right, and we substitute it with another wrong action. And so, okay, well, I stopped cutting people off in traffic. Now I'm just stealing from the bank. You know, we just change one bad action for another. And so we can't reform just with our actions. We must repent in the heart. Let's look at a couple examples. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. Psalm 51, 16 and 17 shows us the importance of repenting from the heart. Psalm 51, verse 16, David writes, You will not delight in sacrifice. This is, again, just just like what we read this morning. Or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, not just the action. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So again, we must be reminded that we are not to just reform our actions. We must first repent in the heart. Secondly, some may experience the emotion of repentance without the effect of it. We all may feel bad at times. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Overwhelmed with grief. Overwhelmed with I hurt my, my, uh, my mom's feelings or I hurt my neighbor's feelings. And so we might be overwhelmed with emotion, but first we must repent Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You could also turn to James 1, 23 and 24. We're just going to look at 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. It says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The biggest example here, I mean, we could, we could look at our own lives and see times where we were remorseful and we were overwhelmed with grief, but we might not have repented from the heart. But we see this in society, whether it's somebody who's in a court case who admits to something and is overwhelmed with despair, or maybe a politician who says, basically, I'm sorry for the people that I've hurt and... Uh, is, is frustrated mostly because they've gotten caught and that they're no longer in their position. But 
we don't know their, their, their hearts, but it seems as if sometimes there's not true repentance. It's just remorse. So again, some may experience the emotion of repentance without the effect of it. But Jesus tells us, Jonah's preaching, again, I love Jonah because I see myself in Jonah's shoes so many times, but even Jonah, an imperfect man, a man who ran from God, was used by God to preach to Nineveh, and Jonah's preaching led people to repent. And so, again, Jesus says, just as Jonah led people to repent, something greater than Jonah is here. You are to seek me. You are to be reminded of who I am. Jesus says this again, just like he said it earlier. Then in verse 42, we see this phrase, I got ahead of myself again, where we see Jesus say he's greater than something else or someone else again. In verse 42, he says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Do you think Jesus is trying to get their attention? I think so. He's saying, don't look here. Don't look here. Don't look to Jonah. Don't look to Solomon. Don't look to the Sabbath. Don't look to the sacrifices. These are all good things. The the fourth commandment is a good thing. The prophets are a good thing, but you are to look to me. So Jesus wants us to see who God is and what he is doing. And we see in this verse 42, an interesting statement. It says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Spoiler alert, this is not a phrase referring to the southern states rising again. Thank God. It is a statement referring to the queen of Sheba in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 10, who saw Solomon and in turn saw the power and glory of Solomon's God. This queen saw the glory of God. Nineveh, the men of Nineveh who repented, saw the glory of God. And what will they all do? They will rise. They will testify of God's glory, His justice, and His righteousness. So Jesus is pointing them to Himself. He is greater than all. That is what the people need to hear. Those who see Jesus for who He truly is, repent, rejoice, and recognize there is hope in following Him and to obeying him. Okay, let's look to the last section, verses 46 through 50. Can you believe I was going to try to preach all this in one sermon? Man, I need to take more medicine. Verse 46 says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It seems at times throughout Jesus' ministry and throughout the Gospels that people are constantly trying to sidetrack him. Constantly trying to say, Come here, do this miracle, do this, do that. Constantly begging for them to carry out their agenda. But we see throughout the gospel, specifically the gospel of John, Jesus says, I have come to do the will of one person, of my Father. My food is to do His work. And we see the same thing here in this section. It could have been enticing 
for him to say, okay, my family is here. I'm going to spend some time with them. But that's not what Jesus does. He emphasizes spiritual relationships over and above his earthly family. I know when we were in Peru and when we met this uh, older gentleman, Elmer, who uh, was starving for fellowship, who was married to an unbeliever, I mean, just instantly. I mean, I didn't speak his language, but I just felt like when he spoke, I understood it. You know, I just did a smile on his face. I just felt like we have a kindred spirit through the Holy Spirit because we both know Christ together. I know when Faith and Ryan and Nancy went to meet Isolina that they didn't want to leave. You know, he's like, can we just stay in this village and tell our jobs back home that we quit? Because they wanted to stay with a believer because they had so much in common with this lady. And so here, Jesus again emphasizes spiritual relationships over and above his earthly family. And then in verse 50, we see this interesting statement. Jesus again always leaves us scratching our heads. He says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's quite a statement. Just as we read in 1 John, what love is this that we should be called the children of God. So what is Jesus getting at here? He is teaching us that we are to know God. We are to obey God. We are to trust God. And that we are doing the will of God when we do these things. Again, I've said before, I've wondered at times, how do I know if I'm doing the will of God? Well, to do the will of God, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, is to be holy, is to be sanctified. So to do the will of God is to obey God, is to trust God, and to do what He commands in His Word. Sometimes we get frustrated when we see our sin. We get frustrated when we see that we are not obeying. But we must remind ourselves that it takes patience, it takes self-control, and it takes discipline. So to do the will of God is not easy, but is rewarding. And we see the reward here in verse 50. It says, those who do the will of my Father in heaven are my brothers, are my sisters. You're my family. What an encouraging reward. So let, let me close with this word from Revelation 14. This calls for patient endurance for God's people who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you will help us to endure. Give us patience, Father, where we grow weary. Give us patience where we, fear lo- where we feel lonely and isolated. Remind us that of your word as we saw this morning. You do not leave your children. You do not forsake your children. And so, Father, we're so thankful that you have not left us as orphans, but you have given us the great counselor, the great Holy Spirit, to teach us, to remind us, to point us to the glory of Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us, enable us, cause us to be faithful to Jesus Christ. He is Lord, Lord of the Sabbath, and Lord over all. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.